This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. You're listening to the full episode of The Indigenous View with Tyson Yonkaporta. Good day, everyone. It is wonderful to have you here on another episode of Life Worlds. Today we're joined by Tyson Yonkaporta, Aboriginal scholar, founder of the Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab at Deakin University in Melbourne, and member of the Appalach clan in far north Queensland, Australia. Tyson is the author of the book Sand Talk, which was wildly successful. And I reckon that part of its popularity has to do with the way that Tyson is able to pack in such punchy wisdom, along with a very sharp-witted trickster-like humor. I love this conversation, and I think you will too. We discuss how their lab collects data and knowledge through a very special indigenous sense-making protocol, and then they apply it to issues like economic reform, broken landscapes, cybersecurity, and neuroscience. We delve into things like the importance of engaging with place, his misgivings around biomimicry, why a real ceremony is not all fun and games, and how the West can quit longing and start acting in finding its own indigeneity. Our conversation is what he likes to call a yarn, and so please kick back and enjoy this yarn with Tyson Yonkaporta. How do those processes, those indigenous processes, look and feel different to what people in the West might be accustomed to? Well, there is a focus on sort of very different variables, you know, for a start. So, um, you know, time and place are always very key variables. So Western processes are very good, but they do tend to eliminate those things. So you might look for, okay, this substance, we need to know what the properties of this substance are and test it for X, Y, and Z, but without paying attention to where and when that substance is harvested. You know, so we might know that in this region, you harvest that fish fat, you know, when you see the yellow flowers on the trees, that's the right season. That's the time when it's medicinal. Whereas Western science, it's just fish oil is fish oil. And, (laughs) you know, you do it. And of course, the results of your fish oil trials, you know, for kidney dysfunction that's uh that's going to be variable results that you'll get so time and place are key variables but it's also who who and how you work with that knowledge it's seldom a singular theory or a singular kind of genius you know running the project and a team is not a a sort of a hierarchical thing with uh, the brightest lab coat at the top or anything like that the processes are um, grounded in in traditional protocols around decision making and you know around distributed authority um, distributed power relations all these sorts of things and particularly ways of aggregating data 
rather than having one thing defeat another, you know. Mm-hmm. You don't throw out the bad seed that's in the mix as well. <laughs> so that's it in, in a nutshell, but we'd have to go a lot deeper to uh, come into that. But, there, I mean, there's always people from lots of different tribes, you know, working together who have very different approaches to things, very different stories, very different focuses, different lenses, you know, people from different clans, different totemic groups who have, you know, uh, a different focus on the environment. And so, you know, we we think it's very good to bring all those together. So, yeah, I, don't, I could talk about those embassy protocols uh, a little later. <laughs> totally, and I, I definitely think we should. And, and we'll also talk about your first point, which is the importance of context and what happens when you remove context in the conversation yeah. around sustainability or governance or economics, uh, sort of taking out the elements of a system. Maybe just touch briefly, you know, you shared with me once that it's not just what you're talking about and how you're talking about it, but it's the protocols within the group, the non-think tank, the flows and the weaves, as you called it. Yeah, yeah. Right? And you say that you're operating on protocols from huge multi-tribal gatherings that occur in the mountains. And so maybe you can bring us into how that conversation unfolds and what that protocol is when you come together and just talk about stuff. Well, it's, you know, it's it's interesting. You, you kind of have to be sung in, storied in, brought in, you know, by the person that's making that place. And so, you know, we have JD on our team, uh, John Davison. He's a cobble gobble waka waka man from, you know, who he keeps song cycles and different things from the Bunya Mountains there. So he kind of keeps the fire for us there and brings us in around it as people from many different parts of Australia with different cultures, uh, Aboriginal cultures. And so we, we sort of come together around that fire and it's it's how he it's how he arranges us. <laughs> Which is a you know very open, very welcoming situation. And just ensuring that there is no sort of singular voice that is dominating coming out on top, that we're not seeking to defeat uh, different points of view or anything like that. But for all of us to bring our stories. And so I guess it's um, it's a process first of bringing all the stories alongside alongside each other and then determining, you know, what needs to be done. There's a name for the process, which is unusual because there isn't, um, you, we don't have a lot of abstract nouns, you know, so we don't have a word for art <laughs> because as if you would name such a thing, it's just something you do. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have a word for nature because as if you would name something like that and call it something that goes over there and you go over here, <laughs> so no, you're embedded in it. But then also um, there is this this really nice collective now called Wanju, which we follow, and that's it's um, basically it translates as collective sense-making. It's all of us bringing our different data sets together and storying those. And so I guess that first layer is you know uh, us coming around the fire like that and talking up what's what's happening in our landscapes you know what's happening in our places uh dreams that we've had the relationships that we have which ones are troubled but then the new relationships that have come in so for example when i met you that was that came into the yarn when i came to the fire i'm like i have a new relationship and um you know, so I screen share and show them this ground effect website. And so then off we go, off we go on ground effect. <laughs> so everybody's like, you know, finding the equivalencies in their law and stories, you know, from thousands of years, you know, coming forward. 
uh, but then also recent observations in the landscape about ground effect and um, swifts flying, you know, for example, and then what that means seasonally. And it's like, oh, yeah, they're doing that. That means rain rain is coming, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah, it ended up, I don't know, leading us off on a quite a – because when that came alongside, yeah, everybody's stories came together around that. It led us into a different direction, which was pretty exciting. And that's, uh, that's when we started, I think, quite strongly on economies of scale and – things like that, and seeing how we could uh, evaluate the economies of scale in nature as opposed to the economies of scale in in industrial systems and look at what the efficiencies are there and how they're different and whether it was desirable or even possible to uh, adjust the industrial ones with biomimicry, uh, looking at the natural ones. <laughs> and that you know then that becomes an ethical thing and then that's something we have to sit with for a long time. So, I mean, there are lots of protocols, lots of things, and sometimes we might have to stop because we say, well, we have to bring somebody else in. You know, I, I need to bring uncle in for permissions here for us to you know, continue with that, et cetera, et cetera. And so we decide also you know, other guests that we want to bring into the, into the yards, and that doesn't have to be, you know, a um, nuclear physicist or anything. It, it might just be or auntie who works at the supermarket and she happens to know eel story and we need to know what's going on with the eels because <laughs> a lot of them didn't come back from Vanuatu this year because <laughs> they go they swim all the way out to Vanuatu from Australia and then come back um yeah and, and like that I want to put a pin in one part of what you shared which was how you bring the other voices in the room yeah because something we'll touch on a little bit later is how we bring the voices of all the other beings that we share this beautiful earth with into climate and sustainability conversations. And that's why at Ground Effect, we call ourselves an animist investment vehicle, which is something to keep striving for. And that will always be imperfectly practiced, right? With a lot of humility. Yeah. Um, so I definitely want to touch on that. And I also would be terrified and yet enthralled to have been in the room when you guys were <laughs> breaking it down and talking about Ground <laughs> Effect in all those ways. And to, to be able to talk about relating to place and context, which I really, really want us to dig into because it's just so critical. I want to set that up by speaking first about how human beings relate to place, which is even just ridiculous that we have to have that conversation as human beings, but we are in a situation where we even have to think about what that means. Yeah. Whereas before it was natural and intuitive. And you had this amazing phrase in your book, Sand Talk, that uh, I'm going to pick up on two phrases. The first was this uh, idea of avatar depression that I'd never heard before. <laughs> <laughs> and I related to that phrase in your book because I encountered that after I watched Avatar. I was just like freaking homesick. And I was like, what the hell am I doing? I want to live in this world. But in this idea of relating to place, and you said as well in the book, the assistance that people need is not in learning about Aboriginal knowledge, but in remembering their own, hmm. which is so interesting because, oh, you know, we have so many new age and experiential uh, meanderings where people go around the world and try and tap into so many forms of Aboriginal knowledge. And I think that that's important. But it was liberating when you said almost Europeans don't have to look to the edges of their cultures. Maybe you don't even have to have avatar depression. Become your place and belong personally to your own system. And whilst that is something that I think most people would agree with when they, when they hear it, they're like, okay, but we're so far from that. Like, how the hell do we even start? And so I'm wondering if 
just just on that superficial level, before we speak about the practices relating to place, what advice you can give to people in terms of how they can even go about that process of not seeking other people's indigeneity, but beginning to encounter their own somehow? Where do they even get going? Yeah. Well, I, I guess, I guess, like a, if you were really hungry, and there was a pie, and it was made, and it kind of had the pastry and the filling, but but none of it was cooked yet. So the pastry was still just raw dough and like it wasn't cooked through or anything like that and, and you just started to eat the pie um, because you're really hungry. And, and then, of course, you start vomiting because that's all no good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of like that. It's like, um, you know, this is something that's it's desperately needed, uh, a reconnection. It's not just people who are longing for it individually and personally, like it's a selfish thing. It's something we're feeling as a species, you know, and not just as a species, but as a system, you know, we're interconnected with all these other species and the entire planet. We're connected with all these things in dire straits. It's absolutely necessary that people are able to return to place. It's like if I want to appropriate from someone else's culture, I might call it a right of return. <laughs> you know what I mean? That there is this right of return that, that's needed. You could call it right as in R-I-T-E if you like. But people need to return to the land. You know, and that doesn't mean you take off your clothes and walk out all booger into the prairie and <laughs> smear mud all over your face and go, rawr. <laughs> that's, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> But maybe, maybe that too. <laughs> you know, but we, we do need to re-embed ourselves in landscape and in place and um, slowly start moving towards uh, a way of life whereby we don't need the word nature anymore. What's the low-hanging fruit there for people? And I'm speaking about Western people mostly, but um, not even, you know, urban folk. Yeah, well, it's, I, I think everybody's feeling, so there's that frustration signal that, that most people are feeling. And I think you follow that, but you also don't. You know, if you're dying of thirst, you, you can't drink too. You've got to take small mouthfuls, you know, so I think you take baby steps, you know. <laughs> you, you go slow because, you know, we're all profoundly damaged and, and you don't want to go too quickly with these things. And much, much of it's awareness-based, and I think it's about bringing, as I mentioned earlier, bringing those variables of time and place into your observation and that that's a good start so you know looking at what happens in time and place even if you're in a metropolitan area might be that you know it's some um, particular sport starts <laughs> in this season but then that might coincide with these things fruiting and all those sorts of things so there's there's that understanding of being in time and place but it's also about collective sense making around that so for example like there's a, in our lab, Chels Marshall, who's, she's a marine biologist and urban planner, and she thinks that those are two very compatible <laughs> things. She talks about a time when she, she had to do some workshops with a, a lot of really sort of disconnected Aboriginal young people, you know, that really hadn't learned very much culture or anything like that. So she, she sat down with the elders first and she got from them a seasonal calendar. They mapped out all of the seasons and all of the changes that happened in their tribal lands, you know, over the course of a year. And it was a visual map and it was just, um, you know, it's very complex because there's usually about seven or eight seasons in Australia. 
And so she went to those young people, but she didn't show it to them right away. She actually got them all to draw and write anything over their lifetime observations about the landscape, how the, how the land changes at different times of the year. Just got them each to write down the fragments of what they knew of that. And then she got them to all come together and share that, you know, in that big Wanju collective sense making. And to all together create a collage of all their shared, just fragmentary knowledge. And they put it all together, you know, into a big visual map. And then she brought out the one from the elders, that very senior elder knowledge, and she put it up alongside theirs and it was identical. And she said, see, like, you know, you know, together, you know. They knew more than they thought they did. Oh man, that's so empowering. Yeah. And here, here is how you find it, you know, in connection and, and in dialogue with place, but with each other, you know, collectively. You're making that sense making collectively and in place. Everything's there. The knowledge is there. Nothing's lost. Like if you're seeking individually, you won't know much and you might lament the little that you'd know because it won't be much. It'll just be a fragment. But collectively, there's a lot. I don't know. You, your, your grandma, you know, she might, when she spills salt, she might pick up a pinch of that and throw it over her shoulder and, and then there might be a thousand things you do, like you, you, you can't help yourself. You seem to always want to save the wishbone when you cook a chicken and you set that aside and dry it and you don't know why you're doing that. <laughs> you know, a thousand little things like that when you all get together and share all those stories, you know, and there isn't that judgment. There isn't that someone seeking to have more knowledge than others, seeking to come out on top. Then the aggregate of all that, you, you find there is you still have it. It's there. But you only have it collectively and in place. That's such a, an improvement on something that I sometimes do with groups when I share with them. You know, in Japan, they literally have identified 72 different micro seasons. You know, the first time that the grasshoppers appear or the melting of the ice on the lakes. And and so when I describe that and then I get everyone in a group to speak about what are the micro seasons you've detected in your place? This process you just described is a vast improvement on that because it's actually people in a place together adding to each other's knowledge maps of the land. And it kind of makes me think of something else um, that I read in your book that actually challenged me a little bit and maybe made me doubt myself, um, which is a good thing, by the way, not a bad thing. And maybe there's a nuance in it that I'm missing and there probably is. So during the pandemic, I was living beside a, a massive, massive national park in, in North California. And I was like, amazing. This is the occasion to peace out and just to spend all of my time in there, in this land, and just get to know everyone who's out there. And so I would wander out and take little uh, naturalist books with me or take pictures with iNaturalist on my phone. And every day I'd come home and sketch who I met, the different plants, the different flowers that were budding because it was April, May. Um, the different seeds I was seeing and leaves and I found their names. And actually for me, the act of knowing their, even if it was their kind of shitty English names, because I felt like they had proper names I didn't know, but I was working with what I had. I found their names and then every time I would go out day after day, I would greet them and I'd be like, hello, like Mayflower or Indian paintbrush or, you know, Bay Tree or, and they had all of these incredible names. And the act of of naming for me was a process of creating kinship or closeness. And so I was really interested in your book because you said something 
around the the notion that naming could also be abstracting and fragmenting. And I also understand that because when you name something, you isolate it from the whole and you make it into a, a discrete noun when it's actually a verb and a, and a, and a process. So in you know, the invitation for people to go into land and start to learn their place and maybe learn the names of things and uh, just become a little bit more embedded in the seasons and the things that are blooming. Is there a way for that process of naming and greeting and recognition to not be fragmenting and abstracting, but to be one of kinship? I, I think it's it's more when you're doing chunking, you know, that chunking that humans like to do. <laughs> you know, when we, we create these heuristics to try and understand things. And we name those groups, those categories, or we name these abstracts. It's those things that can act like a kind of curse and cause a split, you know, a Cartesian split between things that's not necessary. So, you know, naming nature is killing nature. And naming nature with the N-word nature is actually, I'm going to have to call it something else, but you know what I mean. So right there, I, <laughs> I, I just did a naming that really, you know, didn't work at all. You've got to be careful. <laughs> yeah. Think through. Language. I mean, the moment you open your mouth, <laughs> you're yeah. basically screwed. You know, and w- words do have power. The good thing about English, though, is its placelessness. And because it's a trade creole, it's kind of just a hodgepodge of different things and it doesn't really mean anything. And because it's spoken by so many people and it's spoken so widely, um, it loses its power that way as well because it's lost its local sort of thing, then it loses power. Where it gains power, though, is in the regional dialects of English. Like, you know, when you go to the UK and there's like 30 different dialects of English there and, and they all speak it, you know, the same way, like ancestrally in their place there. So you see that. And if you have somebody curse you <laughs> You know, in Cockney, it's it's a lot more powerful than yeah, just sort of random settler dialects scattered around the globe. That's the good thing about English. It's kind of it's weak tea in terms of the power of language. But let's say I'm naming I'm naming plants in English or French or Spanish or any language. Is there a way for that naming to be building relationality, or should we just keep away from naming in general? I mean, maybe you have a protocol that you could share that means that naming or identifying doesn't have to be killing. It's it's the difference between like Alexa, like I might, I don't know, I might make a nickname for you and, and call you Siri and that might be a joke and we have that together and and that's cool. But then if, I don't know, there's, there's a difference there between me calling you Alexa or Siri and me calling you an American, you know? Americans, man, (laughs) that, yeah, they make really good TV, but they're insane. (laughs) What are they doing? You know, um, yeah, so me calling you an American, like, in a pejorative way like that, that's that's not a good use of language, you know, to call you. But if I'm calling you Alexa or, or I'm calling you a nickname that's not your name but that we share together just in our relationship, I don't think that does any harm. So it's almost the energy that's carried by the naming, if it's one of tenderness and connection and familiarity versus a labeling process. So it's even less the words that are said. And Mm. you can feel that they're 
they have such love for the snake or for this beetle. And that's just the word that they have, but their utterance carries uh, respect. Mm. And I think I'm okay with that. Yeah. yeah. But like I said, it's a, it, it, it's about the layers of abstraction yeah. because you've got the Latin taxon, but then as you go out in that taxonomy and you categorize that into a phylum, mm-hmm. you know, it might be that if you ask the first peoples of that place that they have a completely different way of categorizing that and that actually there are different names for that planet at different stages of its life because it becomes a different species as it grows. Say more about that. That's really interesting. I've never heard that before. Yeah, well, it's it's like I said, that idea in Western science that a substance is a substance, we extract it and we test it, and that's universal. You know, So maple syrup is maple syrup kind of thing. And I don't know anything about that maple tree, but I imagine that you only tap those things that are in a certain season and when a, a tree is at a certain level of maturity. <laughs> you know what I mean? It might be that a maple sapling in that place has a completely different name. So, for example, um, we have a, a giant perch fish in Australia that most people know is barramundi. Everybody calls it barramundi, which is an Aboriginal name that's actually for a freshwater fish, a lungfish, like a prehistoric fish from right down in southern Queensland, inland, in the, uh, particularly on, along the Mary River there. So that lungfish was called barramundi in the local languages from that place. And I don't know, some settler or explorer or whatever obviously heard the word barramundi and then they went right up north in Queensland and they saw one of these giant perches, which is a, a saltwater fish, and and they just called it a barramundi. <laughs> and so you have this completely alien <laughs> name there, but everyone calls it barramundi now. But for me, it's just, and people say, well, what's the proper word for that, you know, in your language? There, and I'm saying, well, wunkum, but min wunkum, kinda, like, but that's only the name for the one that's this big, you know? <laughs> it's like um, wetchen is the name of it when it's that big, and then it's wetchentuck, and then wunkum, and then wunglen, a really big one that you don't eat. And that really big one, you know, it changes gender and it changes between being a saltwater and a freshwater fish at different times and transforms and all these things. So that fish in different seasons is a different thing as well. It's even different genders at different times. Um, So the idea of these species being a fixed thing, you know, and that's what God made it. And this is where God put it. (laughs) <laughs> and that's what it is, and that is its name, you know, is a hangover from, you know, pre-enlightenment time, I think, you know, that idea of a static universe. But things are still named, you know, in Latin from an era where the universe was was viewed as more static than it really is. So that reminds me a lot of um, something that, that you've spoken about quite extensively And I want to talk about its implications for the worlds of sustainability and biodiversity and people who are working. But in in this kind of subject of relating to place or the importance of context, you said, you know, you can't isolate processes from their systems of origin and expect them to work, Mm. which actually has pretty dramatic and scary implications. Because if you have these feedback loops in a landscape or in a place, but then you're extracting some form of, of value or 
um, spirit or being or organism or origin from that place and shipping it elsewhere, and you don't close that loop, then you're isolating a process from a system and you're expecting that system to work. Um, and it, similar to what you said about you don't do biomimicry unless you're mimicking the whole system. It's like, oh, great, like we can imitate this termite mound and like make a you know, self-ventilating um, shopping wall in Africa, but but you're also isolating it from the system. And yeah. so, and then another point that you also share, which is just building up to a question, but this really triggered thought for me when you said animal behavior and plants flowering have not been included as data points in climate modeling. And so are we at a point right now when you have global financial institutions and corporations building models of climates of quote unquote nature. And yet those models are so incomplete that they might be doing more harm. And maybe you can speak to ways that that could be doing harm and any ways that you could see to remediate that. Like, is there a way to bring that context in to data when everything is about numbers and individual discrete entities? That's the thing, isn't it? It is. <laughs> but see, that's that's why you need people working with provocations like ideas like uh, e ecological services and things like this, uh, as long as they're not settling on that heuristic and thinking, okay, we've got it now. Biodiversity credits. Carbon credits. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> you know, these are, these are experiments. These are provocations, and they should be followed through. I think... Um, most people and, and indigenous academics, we're guilty of it too. We celebrate early. We launch. We're like we're always wanting to go to launch. <laughs> you know, we want a, a test case, and then we're, when we just want to launch it, and go, "Yep, we're a startup. Off we go. Let's do it." And um, you know, no, nah, that's not how it works. But you do need to work through these things. I guess. I guess that was a discovery we had recently in the lab. It sort of happened over the last over the last six months or so. Slowly, slowly, um, this idea that you can't remove things from their context, and this is where biomimicry doesn't work. Like in terms of design, you know, like yes, you can invent Velcro by observing how the burrs stick to your dog's fur, you know. But um, I mean, there's a lot more there. <laughs> Yeah, biomimicry doesn't really work, you know, in systems unless you want to, I don't know, can you mimic an entire natural system or do you just integrate those things, like reintegrate that? <laughs> and then what does that look like? Yeah, it's pretty It's pretty terrifying. It started, I mean, I guess we started with, with the, out, when we're talking through the outcomes of uh, when we took a, an element of our kinship our kinship system. So what are the implications of that kind of kinship understanding of any kind of series of relations for people who are doing climate uh, modeling or data or trying to quantify these services? Like what are the, you know, if they're listening to this, they're like, okay, what the hell do I do with that kind of knowledge? It's almost impossible to capture. Yeah. I, I always meant to ask uh, this lady, I'm going to have to try and find that again. But there was a, a climate scientist who she said she'd been sitting on all of this data for um, like a year and trying to figure out how it could be that she would be able to analyze it and present it in a way that would be readable and understandable for the findings that were there because it was enormously complex and she couldn't figure it out. Anyway, she sent me a note saying, thank you so much. I, I read your book and um, 
And then I just went to sleep one night and I woke up in the morning and I knew how to do it. <laughs> We've got to find out what she did with that. Yeah. And anyway, she just said she innovated an entire new way to do it and, and, it, and it worked out. She managed to, you know, do it. It was it had too many moving parts before for her to be able to see it. And then, then it did. And I'm like, I don't know, at the time, I, I get too many emails, you know, so I kind of lost it. And should I follow it up? God. Please, please, because this is such, I mean, this is a pretty critical question. It's, you know, if we're trying to add more complexity to our understanding of the world or add more context, then those kinds of linear systems that are determining financial flows and money mm. flows and therefore energy flows have to integrate that kind of knowledge. And part of what we talk about on Life Worlds is how do we bring the voices of all of those other worlds and all those other organisms and processes into our day-to-day and how do we translate on behalf of them? And so I just think you're at such an interesting intersection because you have all of these protocols and all these incredible people in your lab who are looking at this, but trying to apply it to governance systems and economic systems. And and so specifically in the kind of natural capital, I'm doing quotation marks, economic system, um, integrating the kinds of knowledge that you guys are working with hasn't been done yet, I don't think fully. And it is a really fascinating and critical intersection. Well, you know, I wonder if, I don't know, like, or if there were different parts that were identified sort of totemically as, as being somebody's lookout, you know. And so what if you had somebody who was like, uh, it was kind of like their lens had to be all about um, the unemployment, uh, <laughs> you know, um, that figure. And, and be watching everything in relation to that. And what if somebody else was was um, you know looking at interest rate, and another person was looking at um, you know real estate prices, and those three got together and <laughs> sort of had to compare notes from there, you know, and had to do that one little collective sense making there. And, um, I know that's a really basic sort of you know example because obviously we know how those things are related <laughs> but um you know it uh i don't know is there a way not of creating necessarily but of defining value in the current economic system that respects the inherent rights of other forms of life their their capacity to be or do you think it's just a, a messed up experiment unfortunately the, uh, only for brief and fleeting moments you know it can last for about as long as burning man <laughs> The economy of Burning Man lasts, which is a brief and beautiful flower in the desert. Not the Burning Man itself, um, yeah. <laughs> but the economy that they have, which is without money, you know. Um, but but it's, as I mean, as you would say, right, like that it's not actually without money. It's everyone makes shit tons of money the rest of the year outside yeah. of that system come in for Utopian Week. But then the moment you're driving out, people are dumping things into, you know, massive trash cans because the week's over on the drive out. So leave no trace there, but I'll leave a trace, you know, yeah. 50 kilometers away on the drive past Reno. So, uh, yeah, but money itself, that's it. Money itself is not, is not the, not the issue. It's, and it's, I mean, not even debt. There's a massive gravitational pull that comes with capital. And I'm t- not talking about capitalism, but capital itself but in particular, uh, two-thirds of the capital, like a particular two-thirds of the capital in the world. And that's um, not a lot of people know this, but the land makes up about two-thirds of the capital still. What do you mean by that exactly um, in terms of how we valued capital and debt and 
mortgages and things like that? Like, yeah, no, the capital that's held, yeah. you know, by oligarchs okay. and you know, and you know, their minions um, uh, throughout the world is, you know, like what you need if you want to borrow, you know, something that's mortgageable, something that's you can borrow against, you know, um, which is what all the capital is for in the end in this economy. Um, yeah, um, yeah, two thirds of the capital in the world is land, and in the end, if land is capital, then there can be no value or lasting value or you know sustainable ways of doing uh, relational exchange, uh, tracking value in in relational ways. Why? Because you've abstracted land into just a dollar figure, and so anything that's happening on it is is no longer has its own. Uh, it's, there's that, but there's there's also it's 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 a very concrete impact on land when you make it into capital, you know, because you must, um, uh, in order for anything to have value to be priced, it must be limitable and excludable, you know. So you must have exclusive rights to that land. You must be able to exclude others from it. Uh, I can't go on most of my land because it's it's someone else's property. There are fences, um, there are dogs, there is security, there is um, there are laws, uh, there is zoning that prevents me from approaching those places. You know, there's uh, I, I my community must live on that side of the tracks or on that side of the river, and you know those zones are policed. Um, but it's not just that; it's not just for us. It's everything. So we're the people who care for that land and must be part of it because we occupy an ecological niche in that land. And if we're not in that niche, then the land suffers and everything falls apart. But apart from that, you know, um, the, you know, surveying and, and cutting up of the land and, you know, the creation of all these blocks and barriers and walls and fences and, um, you know, this terraforming that's constantly going on, it prevents the flow of not just energies but all the species that must move throughout that landscape and keep the um, regenerative loops going, you know, within that uh, system and, you know, the series of interconnected systems that make up a bioregion and a group of bioregions, etc. those flows are prevented. Uh, the land can't move, the land can't breathe, Animal migration routes are, are changed or they're blocked or they have roads cutting them off so there is a massive toll on any anything trying to follow those migration routes. Oh, God, not just the migration routes but just the daily round of, you know, grazing, grazing routes, etc. cetera, that, that, that go on as, as they move from that low ground and up to the ridge and everything else. Um, yeah, everything's blocked, prevented, stifled in that way. Um, as long as land is capital, um, the land will die, you know, because it prevents us from going on it, but then also prevents, uh, stifles the movement of everything else on land. So, and as long as the land is dying, then in the end, nothing can have true value. And you can't maintain uh, true value systems or relational systems or an accounting system that has found a way to measure verbs and not just nouns which is a very sexy Native American idea, which is, is really cool and would be great if we could implement it in a system where land was not capital. That's the foundation. That's the mycelium 
of this um, of this economic system. And you, you can have a free market, you can have whatever you want, but if as long as you don't have that bedrock of land as capital, then you, you could find a way to make it work. But as long as that's there, we're doomed. I, this is, um, you know, land is body, right? And I wrote a piece once that speaks very similar to, to some parts of what you just said about until we feel the earth's body as our own and all of the processes connecting the liver and the lungs and the blood cells, until we feel that land is not capital but body, then it's going to be an imperfect system. Mm. Um, and also I think it goes back to what we said about biomimicry can make a lot of snazzy kind of short-term interventions and green building and all of this. Yes, because we're so far from some kind of optimal level. But you're creating these discrete entities that in themselves might be sustainable, but the processes that link them um, are individualism and private ownership. And so the process is broken. And so even if we're building green or building sustainable, yeah, yeah. if the relationship between the, 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 the forces that live inside those buildings, aka humans and all of the other species that share space with us, if you have private ownership, then it, it's, it, it may look like an idealized, um, you know, bioregion or microtown, but the, 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 the flows that are invisible, but existing between those nodes are, are cut off because of privatization. That's it. And so if you're not designing for the process um, of how exchange is happening, monetary, physical, you know, energetic, et cetera, um, you're kind of really only going part way. And that brings me to this thing that I, I want to talk to you about. Um, you speak about the role of, of ceremonial actions in maintaining proper energy flows and good relations. I want to kind of break down this like uh, tokenized idea of like what a ceremonial action is, as you said, like, yeah, take off your clothes and go booga booga into the land. No, like, is there a super practical way of talking about what a ceremonial action is that won't freak out people and be like, oh, that's just that new age, you know, new age BS. Like, what is a ceremonial action that maintains those energy flows? I think we've spoken to one, which is just the idea of ownership and privatization, but yeah, speak a little bit to that, please. Mm, yeah, for sure. And linking all those points together, uh, we have floods. We have floods at the moment right up our east coast there, and there are a lot of earth ships un under underwater <laughs> now. You know what I mean? These floods happen every ten years or so. Like earth ships, like the sustainable um, homes kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, totally, yeah. yeah. There's heaps of heaps of sustainable <laughs> homes oh, under man. under ten meters of water right now. You know what I mean? Uh, heaps yeah. of really eco friendly, you know, <laughs> awesome. Um, <laughs> what a metaphor. What a metaphor. Solar oh, heated. Man. Yeah. Um, you know, which, which is cool. But the other thing is the people who are living in those homes are, are more likely to be the people that you want around you to rescue people and, and help out and clean up afterwards and, you know, um, watch you back while you sleep rough afterwards. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and that's, that's the thing. You know, it's 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 a it's a process. Everything's a process, and the same with with ceremony. You know, ceremony doesn't just drop out of a tarot deck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I've, I've I've been grappling with this for a long time because people do want to jump. They want to have something like that, but you know, we don't really enjoy ceremony that much. I, I don't know. Well, I don't anyway. My, my eldest son, he just, he, he thinks it's so boring. He avoids it like the plague. 
<laughs> like the plague, like since he was a kid, just didn't want to be anywhere near it. And it does take a long time and your back hurts and it's hours and it's repetitive. And that, that's the easy ones. And the other ones, are, they're just terrifying. You know, like uh, most, <laughs> most of us will run and hide when the old fellas come be, to take us for ceremony <laughs> in men's business because it's freaking scary. <laughs> It's scary and, and and it's weeks and it's awful and it's really uncomfortable. And it's like lot it's like war, there's lots of boredom and then moments of terror and you know, and nobody wants to do it. Um it, it's freaking hard. <laughs> you know, um but then, you know, I see all these Canadian truckers doing, you know, Native American drum circles in their blockade. <laughs> You know what I mean? And and sweat lodges and stuff and beside the jumping castle. And, you know, like people want the ecstatic moment and the, the thing that will make them feel special. And ceremony is seldom that. You know, it's seldom that. It's it's hard. And it's the thing where you give back of yourself, you know, to what, what's been extracted and to what needs to be renewed. Because there's that... Um, there's that sort of uh, spirit, there's that top up of energy that keeps happening, you know, in our living systems that keeps entropy at bay. And, and there's our efforts there uh, are there to make sure that we're paying that back as well, you know, with ceremony. Ceremony is the thing that amplifies that, that creates increase, you know, in the landscape and that makes sure that we're all connected together in one mind to be able to understand the many things that must be done and to be in tune with that. Um, it's huge. But I, I was talking last night to my Viking mate, Rune Rasmussen, <laughs> and he's like, and because he's like, I, Tyson, I'm, I'm putting together a big ceremony for the world, to heal the world, you know. And I'm like, oh, all right, man. And he's like, yes, so I'm, uh, you know, I'm doing this big ceremony and, uh, and I'm going to get everybody's going to do it and it's going to fix up the planet and it's going to be great. And I'm like, all right, man. <laughs> all right, what do you got? You know, because I'm like, you know, for, see, it can't come from nothing. You have to have law. You have to have story, you know, and it has to be place-based. And, and it can't just be millions of people like in this idea of a nation or a bloody global village all doing the same thing because it's, different expression in every bioregion, in every place, in every clan, it'll be different, you know? And and sure, there's a there's these nested fractal kind of syndicated thing that that goes on across all those groups, but it's never the same thing. You know, it's a it's a networky kind of thing. But you have to have law, you have to have story, and it's got to be good story. It's got to be right story, not something singular, not something coming from uh, a fantastic individual or a group. You know, it's it's good stories never unilateral. You know, that's only wrong story. It goes that way, you know. But he tells me the story, and it, it's an old story, a Viking story that's in an eight-year cycle, you know, from an old man who wanted to live forever. And so he, he sacrificed I had to sacrifice one of his sons every year and he did it for eight years and it, it ended up turning him into this like big man baby kind of drooling infant that had to be 
cared for while he died and it ended there. So it's this eight-year cycle of this of this Viking king who, who went the wrong way with that. And I'm like, oh, that's a proper story, you know? It's like in this eight-year cycle and there are all these natural cycles that occur you know, within that eight-year period. There is a star cycle that happens in alignment with that. There's all these things, you know, and it's it's the real deal. And I'm like, well, that has law and that's that's a good story and right story. And it speaks so much to everything that's going on, that, that narcissism, uh, the transhumanism, that, that sort of, you know, that the fear-based stuff that's going on in the world. Everybody wants to live forever. Everybody's, you know... Uh, I don't know. For me, it just um, it speaks to a lot. That sort of ceremony is starting to put together. It speaks to a lot of the you know really big root problems in the world. So um, I thought I thought that's that's good. That's good ceremony. But I also like when you you can't just design it yourself and then impose that on everybody. That's it has to be. You know, everyone in their own place is going to have to be coming up with their own different way, their own dance, their own. You know, and that'll happen like that. And in some places, all those different ones will come together. You spoke to something really, really critical, which I want to highlight, which is the role of ceremony isn't just to consecrate something or admire something or revere it, but it's to put your own sweat equity into back into a place. And if you think about it, everything on earth this palm that's going in front of me and it's always generating an energy yeah. that often the human world, the human world, the homo sapien world, let's say is, is absorbing in and, and using as materials for our stuff. But our own sweat and toil doesn't necessarily go back into a place. And so these, you know, when the elders come and you're like, should, should run and hide for the woods. Cause we've got to, you know, we're going to be sweating for weeks. That is a really um, like generative and generous form of ceremony that I don't think happens enough or is even part of people's definition of ceremony. Um, I've thought a lot about, you know, how do we set up like a counter religion, like a sort of pagan animist uh, toolkit that all communities can, can have and ways that they can begin to think about how they can generate their own ceremonies. And as you said, it's not like, you know, turn three times and like hit the ground fight. Like, it's not like what I'm telling you to do. But because, again, especially in certain cities and parts of the world, our natural ceremonies have been forgotten, but the land remembers them, right? So, and tells us, tells them to us. And so, is there a way for communities to start to create their own ceremonies, not appropriating from other places, but listening to the land and, and relearning what the land is, is, is reminding them to do? Do you, have you seen that happen? Is that something that's that's feasible? I think so. It's it's not something I'm comfortable with, but that's because of my own prejudice. Like, so I mean, you have a lot of people who'll be just enraged about anyone attempting to do that, even in just their own town. Like, I'm going to listen to the yew tree, and no, they can't. They can't have that. Like, they, you know, like it's would be like, ah, no, you know, you're white, you can't do it. You're not allowed to have that. You're allowed to ever have that. You wrecked the world, and now you gotta <laughs> just be evil forever. Um, and you know, don't come around trying to you know regain any kind of humanity. Now you're the evil one, and and I and I, I feel that, and I, and I have to regulate myself with it. 
you know, because I, I know how important it is, that right of return. Like I, I know that if, if we can't do that and do it soon and bring everybody up, everybody on the planet back under the law of the land where they are, then everything and everyone's going to die. So I know it's existential, but there's some ego part of me that just goes, nah, you can't have that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I um, what if it's co-create? What if it's co-created? Oh no, I, I'm I'm not. I'm, you can't rationalize it. I, I've got an irrational kind of um, <laughs> an irrational response to it, but I push through that. I push through that. Yeah. I push through that, and and I talk to people a lot. There was, and you know, the best of our elders do that too. The best of our elders bring people in and support people to build their own stuff up and uh, even create new kind of dialogical kind of ceremonies in place. Um, and that's that's happened right here. There's a there's a place called Ceres where they regenerated a just a completely blasted landscape. It, it was horrific. Uh, regenerated a creek and the kingfishers came back to that creek. And the kingfisher, that's the bird that that takes the spirits of the dead across, you know. So it you know, finally settled all the spirits of the dead from genocides in that place, you know, to putting, uh, taking them back. So all of the European people who had worked so hard to regenerate that landscape from the mycelium up because it was just nothing, dead, dead dirt, they, they built it all back up again. All the soil, all the trees, regenerated the creek. They did all this work. And, yeah, the elders, the Wurundjeri elders from there said, well, we've got to do a kingfisher ceremony. They, they planned a really big ceremony, and they kind of co-designed it. So they did, uh, like, a lot of elements of the traditional thing. But then, I mean, they ended up, they brought busloads of children in from all the schools all around in the region and they ended up there were hundreds of people there and they all had made their own costumes which wasn't it's not the traditional way to make their costumes but that's what they did they were all dressed up as these different kinds of birds from the story and and there were crows and there were you know all kinds of eagles and they all had their roles and they choreographed this massive dance of hundreds of people and they decided to have a dress rehearsal the day before the real thing and so they bust all the kids in and everyone was there but that they, they didn't realize that you know ceremony is ceremony there's no dress rehearsal so, so they did it you know and the idea was that the ceremony would like bring that big rain that would just cleanse all that place and settle all the bad spirit and the last of the toxic stuff out and send it away so they did the dress rehearsal and of course you know the sky opened up blue sky turn into a thunderstorm like really quick <laughs> and and it just so you've got all these little kids in bird costumes like screaming and crying and their costumes get just get ruined like they've been gluing it for weeks and making these beautiful things and they're just this big sudden mess like i don't know five six hundred kids all crying and screaming and running back to the buses and there's mud everywhere and and the organizers were devastated because the whole thing's ruined and and then they were all kind of walking back over there all crying and and then and, and the sky sort of cleared and then there was a big double rainbow you know over the site you know double rainbow is pretty rare there and and they all just realized you know ah that was it that was the ceremony finished no dress rehearsal <laughs> so you know and so they accidentally did real ceremony 
uh, and that was under the auspices of the elders and, you know, and I think um, there are good dialogical things that can happen there. And I guess it depends whether you're in a sort of a settler colonial state, a colony, a decolonized nation or a, a formerly imperial nation. It, I guess it depends the place where you stand and how you belong there and whether you're reconciled with your belonging in that place. And this is tricky because most of the people in the world are living in diasporic communities. There aren't very many people on the planet living on their traditional homelands. So here's where things become difficult. You have to decide where your place is and whether where you are is where you want to be. And just commit to it, yeah. Before we, we close off for today, um, how can people, I mean, you've got already t- too many emails to respond to, so how can people connect with your work and the work of the lab and um, and other maybe similar labs, uh, if they got you know lit up by this conversation, where would you point them to? They find my lab. At, it's at Deakin University um, in uh, Geelong, Victoria, Australia, yeah. Melbourne. It's an Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab based at the Nakiri Institute there. So it's um yeah, it's it's pretty exciting stuff. That was Tyson today on Life Worlds. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Stay tuned in two weeks' time where we will have a fresh episode going into nature-based planning and maps for large landscape conservation. As always, I'd love to hear from you. So please reach out to me on lifeworld.earth where you can also find all of the show notes and an open source library ranging on everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to the email list and I'll see you back here soon. Bye.